Thank you for listening to the Fashion Africana podcast. Please be respectful of the intellectual property featured in this episode. Hello everyone, I'm Beatrice Angot-Ola and you're listening to Fashion Africana podcast. And today I'm speaking with Seju. Hi. Hi. Hello. Seju, could you please briefly introduce yourself to us? Okay, hi. I am Seju Alera Mike. Um, how do I introduce myself? Um, I'm a, I guess, creative entrepreneur who's focused over the last couple of years on um, creating businesses and infrastructures that allow us to kind of amplify African voices in the diaspora, essentially, um, African culture in the diaspora, and finding ways to connect, connect folks regardless of where they are. All right. Okay. I mean, I know that um, you have been once a financial manager, that this is your background. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, I said, okay, from finance to creative industry, when and how did you get started? I don't know if there was ever a time in which I wasn't doing both, really. Even back to, you know, when I was in school, I would always take like four finance classes or four B-school classes and one class that was in the arts. Every semester, I always took one class that was in the arts because the creative space has always been something that I've wanted to dabble in one way or the other. And it's just part of my passion, I guess. Things that I enjoy are really much grounded in that space. So when I started working on my career, you know, when I entered into the corporate space, I mean, you know, with a degree in finance and with that being my main background, I started do, I started working in that space initially. Um, but then ended up creating these different um, platforms, which really started off as passion projects, but have kind of blossomed now into, I guess, or are growing more so into the revenue generating um, platforms that I would hope they can be. Um, but yeah, I don't think there was ever really a time where I, I did one or the other um, exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, we also need to say that your your father, who is an international um, yeah playwright and theater director, may have had good influence. <laughs> And I mean, you know, he has been in the field and um, yeah, this is always good to have, of course, uh, an idol to look up at who is in the scene and who can also guide. And I think um, this is also so important for the work you do, because I believe um, for so many, I mean, we know our families um, when you say, hey, I want to be an artist. They look at Luli like, what? better study law, finance, medicine. So it's a risk and it's really um, not always easy to get that message to the parents. And um, I don't know, how was it in your case? Because you started first with finance. Actually, yeah, I had the, the opposite experience in that, you know, in my family, there wasn't ever any pressure to focus on one particular field or go into something that was specifically structured in a way like, you know, I wasn't ever pressured to be a doctor, lawyer, any of those things. Actually, my father also influenced my career path in finance because he was the first person. When I remember when I got, when I, I can't remember how old I was, but when I got my first allowance, he gave me this little notebook and he told me to write inside it how, how I spent my money, like basically to take account of how I was spending my money. And that really was kind of the thing that got me down that path as well. At the same time, he's also the one who really also exposed me to the things in the creative because our home was always filled with artists. Our home was always filled with great music, with, you know, great literature um, and artwork all over the place um, from, you know, some really interesting African artists that my father was friends with. So on both sides, he kind of exposed me to the two things that I think became really impactful in, in helping me decide my career path or not really decide because <laughs> I, I don't think any of this has really been a decision. <laughs> It's really been stumbling into new things and stumbling into new experiences and then just leveraging one learning into the next one. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, this is so nice. Pretty nice to be able to just have, to have that support system and know that there's people that you can um, rely on for advice and know that there isn't any pressure to move in one direction or the other. That was 
I'm thankful for that, to be very honest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, this is um, something I also see what, um, what we actually do with our platforms, you know, for the ones who, who would like to, you know, get access and um, have a passion for art, passion, music. I mean, yeah, let us maybe know a little bit more about um, your digital platform. Mm-hmm. So um, my earliest project, I guess, that really has grown in this space is um, Osengwa, which is a virtual platform that showcases African art, um, music, um, music, visual arts, and fashion. And it really started off because I had a couple friends who were doing some really amazing work. And I just thought, I don't understand. How come I can't find your things in the U.S.? So after a couple of conversations, I was like, you know what, hold on, I'll be back. I'm going to go build the thing. So um, built the platform and then tapped into a talent pool that were really just personal connections um, from the time when I was living in, because although I started my career in America, working in corporate America, I came back home to Nigeria for like two years um, to do the youth core. And I worked a bit doing some consulting. And during that time frame, I think was when I really built that network and built those connections of folks who were in the creative space, funnily enough, <laughs> who are just people that I like because I, I love the energy and I love being around people that are doing beautiful things. So that's really how that grew. And then over the last few years, the platform has grown. We've gotten quite a bit of a following on social media. We've built quite a bit of a community. And, you know, we've also expanded into having um, events and trying to give people a chance to actually feel the the virtual experience live, like, you know, touch, see, um, and experience the art in person. And we're planning some some interesting things going into the next year, hoping to kind of expand the platform, pivoting some angles within that. But I'm really excited for a couple of the things that we have coming up. Um, just need to get the work going. And now that I'm shifting full-time from the corporate space to kind of focus on this, this project, I'm hoping to be able to grow it even further and to expand the community beyond just the reach of the virtual platform to actually having, you know, an active community in person in different pockets internationally that we can engage with. All right. That sounds very interesting. Looking forward to that. Cause I know it's, yeah, it needs passion to, to keep up that work and um, to be surrounded with like-minded um, because yeah, to move things. And, um, from what I understand, um, you, you live between the U S and, um, Nigeria or are you now permanently in Nigeria? (laughs) (laughs) A good question. That's a good time. Um, so up until literally about a month ago, I was based fully in the U S. Um, I just moved back to Nigeria now. Um, and I believe I shall be here for an indefinite period. Um, but part of the, you know, part of the reason moving back home was to reestablish some of those connections and to be fine to kind of build that base on the continent. Also, with the things that have been going on this year, it just kind of felt like the timing was right. I know it might sound crazy because the world has actually been on fire, basically. And, you know, Lagos has definitely suffered its own share of that as well. Um, it's, you know, a huge, huge part of that. But all of those things have kind of been a catalyst for me in terms of, you know, pushing me towards moving back home and trying to reconnect with the base. And I think it will be a good point to springboard to do some of the things that I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to achieve next year. Because um, the other project that I did mention um, is the, my most recent project, which is the app that I built earlier this year and did a soft launch on. We're planning on also expanding that next year and kind of leveraging the Osengwa network as well to grow this platform, which is called Irami, yeah. which means um, my people. And it's essentially a, a space to connect Africans in the diaspora. So on there, you can find you know African restaurants, grocery stores, um, pretty much everything that you might need with an immediate ecosystem to kind of get settled in a new space. Because yeah. I built based off of my experiences traveling and when I would get somewhere different, you know, like if I was in China or in Brazil, within a couple of days, you've enjoyed the culture, you've enjoyed the people, but then you also want to find where, you know, where are my people in this space? You know, are there events going on? Can I buy food? Can I buy groceries? Where can I cut my hair? Like something that simple. So 
that's the other project that I'm working on. So I'm right now kind of like in the research phase with that. And I think, and when I, and everything that I do, I like to tap folks that are back home to help with yeah. building so the team that I have that's working on that is based here. So All I'm right. hoping Nigeria will also help me, you know, kind of push that a bit further. Yeah. All right. So then um, these are good, good projects. So what are your thoughts on the future of e-commerce on the continent? And um, yeah, I mean, things are I'm, moving. <laughs> I'm actually really excited for e-commerce on the continent because this is the thing I realized. I've only been back home now a couple of weeks and I and I had completely underestimated the amount, the volume of, of e-commerce that already happens here. You know, I think I'd taken it for granted that, because the last time when I was back home, living home was like 10 years ago. And at that time, you know, if you wanted to find something, you had to physically go to a place or you had to call someone, you had to know someone. So I was still working off of that premise, like being in America, thinking like that's how the ecosystem works. But being here, I realized that that is not the case at all. Like you can pretty much get anything you want online and there's a lot of growth in terms of um, infrastructure for for building a delivery system so with companies like gokada and you know all, all these um, um these logistics companies come you know that have started to spring up it's actually really helped that ecosystem and there's a lot of e-commerce going on and i think from the most basic things so i'm excited for the future of that figuring out ways in which you can actually leverage that on on the continent itself, mm-hmm. um, still understanding that there's still space for growth and that there are still issues within this because, I mean, it exists, but does it work as cleanly and as smoothly as you would want it to? Not necessarily, right? There's still places in which there's improvements to be made, but when there's space for improvement, that also means there's opportunity for growth within the industry, opportunity to actually impact it significantly. So, um, yeah, I think... There's, there's a lot to be done here. And in your opinion, what digital trends can we expect to see in the next few years? Because, I mean, we have the gaming scene, you know, and there's also a lot happening on the continent. So, yeah, we'd like to hear from you. When I think over the next few years, I think when I think of Africa, I, I always think, well, one of the first things we always do is, well, what we try to do is we try to take Western solutions for African problems first. So we'll take something that we've seen somewhere else and say, okay, this works. Like, let's build, you know, the African Amazon. And then we realize that there's all these problems and things that don't make it work exactly. So then we now have to tailor it to our own specific needs. I think that's it's more of that. <laughs> Thinking of the, the future in Africa is really much more, more of that. So it's more of looking at what other folks have used to solve problems externally. And then, like, what are the trends there? What are the things that are happening in that space? And then, you know, kind of, like, imagining that on our system but there was like tweaks a lot of growth has happened within the fintech space there's the acquisition of paystack there's you know funding of um oka you know there's all these little companies that are growing that are in that space that are finding ways to make these transactions smoother make these transactions more secure so as that continues to happen and as we continue to have more adaptation, you know, because I'm thinking of it in relation as well, because for me, at the end of the day, I, I always think back to what's happening in the creative space, right? Exactly. As have an explosion and the growth within the creative space, because you're seeing more acceptance of um, African creative work in an international space. I see that intersection, you know. Yeah, yeah. Especially because you also have companies like, uh, there's a friend of mine who's working on this project called Sinwax, and he's building something similar to like a Netflix, but with African content, with specifically African content. And those are the things I'm excited for, because those are the things that tend to be able to help us cross the bridge, right? Be able to carry some of the work that we're doing here, some of the, cre- some of the creative energy that's happening in this space and take that outside the continent and, and continue to build that appreciation for African work and African creative energy in the diaspora. So when I think of the trends and I think of the trends in relation to technology, those are some of the ideas and some of the things that I'm hoping people will continue to grow. You know, some of the things that I'm working on as well, I'm hoping will actually give more access to capital mm-hmm. um, on the continent because I think that's one of the things we struggle with a lot, right, is we're always buying things from the West. We're always buying things. We're investing. We're in continuously importing. I think it's important that we also export not just um, physical goods, but 
creative capital and intellectual capital. Oh, yes. This is a good one. Seju, this is what I believe as well. Because it's now also time, you know, we need to build structures and we need to really benefit from it, you know, because there's so much talent and um, also know-how on the continent, but somehow along the way it gets lost. And, um, you know, it gets lonely. It get lost. It gets lonely. what you end up seeing continuously is that you find out some amazing thing has happened somewhere and then you find out there's an African at the root of it in one way or the other. So it's not even really stolen. It's because, you know, because of, of the struggles back home, I see it happening, especially, with, for example, with things that have happened in Nigeria over the last couple of months with the NSARS movement. Right? A lot of the conversation that I've had since then is people saying, you know, I'm trying to get out of here. I'm trying to leave, I'm trying to go somewhere. And it saddens me because it's, it's a brain dream, right? We're, and we end up losing our intellectual capital and our creative capital. And then people go to these other places and end up helping to solve problems there or to build things that are beautiful in those spaces. And we end up neglecting our own. And it's not for lack of wanting to be here or lack of wanting to build the infrastructure here. It's just the frustration. Yeah, yeah. So much. So it's just so much on the daily that can frustrate your efforts, and it makes it at some point people just have to decide. You know, what's best for me is to build elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a pity. Well said. I mean, we also followed very well, um, or what we could follow so far, the NSARS movement. And um, there have been also um, protestants in Germany. Really, um, yeah taking a stand and and um somehow making it um clear what is going on and um yeah it was just a a pity to see it's my i mean not only in in nigeria cameroon the the, the whole continent there has been yeah a lot of protest and um everywhere mm, mm. year 2020 is one that's going to go down in the I mean, it's already an easy year to remember, right? And I was just, I was saying this to someone the other day, that kids in the future, whenever someone asks them a question on an exam, when did blah, blah, blah happen? Just just say 2020, because it was likely <laughs> that it happened in that year. <laughs> likely it happened in that year. It doesn't matter what country it was. It doesn't matter what it was. It happened in 2020, because honestly, you know, it feels like everywhere. And the continent especially, um, Black people especially have had a really rough go of it this year, but I don't think it's that they had a rough go of it this year. I think it's that just got tired and started speaking. You know, I think people just got tired. and were like, you know what? I'm not, I'm done. Because all these things were already building up. They didn't start this year. Yes. You know, all these issues, they were already building up. They've been, they've been layered and layered and layered for years, layers of problems, layers of, you know, frustration. And then people just got tired. And it's, I feel like one of the biggest catalysts for that was starting with the Black Lives Movement and, you know, everything that yeah. happened with George Floyd, happy George yeah. Floyd in, in the States and people just being like, you know what, no, no more. We're tired of this. Mm-hmm. And, then, and it's kind of like a trickle-down effect. Others now realizing that, in fact, yes, you people there, you people can be shouting. So us over here as well, we're tired and we're not going to take this anymore. And people have been home, you know, there's a lot of things that have also impacted this. So it's addition to the pandemic forcing people to be in, confined spaces and in isolation and people looking for ways to communicate each other, especially, and, and come together on something that is a pain point. Let's mm. all come together, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This year, truly. And um, yeah. So during the Black Lives Matter movement, you were in the U S and yes, I, I mean, all over the world, I was so, amazed to see that there's a solidarity and there's a stand and you know I was just saying wow finally because as we all know this was not the first black man being killed by police brutality you know and um but what would you say I mean you you have been living in the U.S. do you believe that the system in a way is somehow really going to change or is it something that is so deep rooted and um it's it's just such a major um yeah even yeah challenge that it cannot be overcome kind of Mm. answer your question to some extent right if you look Mm. at the election results there were still so many people 
that voted. <laughs> like it was, the, you would expect that in this year there should have been such a wide margin that it was not even possible for it to be contested in any form or fashion in any way because common sense dictates that you, you know, you move in a certain direction based on the things that you have witnessed and you have seen. But there were still so many people, you know, who voted in, who voted for Trump. There were yeah. still so many people who voted for someone who is clearly clearly who has been you know incredibly vocal and clearly against basic human decency and that i think speaks volumes to the problems that exist in the united states so in as much as we may be seeing some change in the immediate future you know right now there's a focus on spending on black businesses there's a focus on spending on on, on, on you know, inclusivity in workspaces. You know, there's this focus on companies making sure that they have proper black representation. It's fantastic, it's great to see. It's good to see black people holding holding these companies accountable, you know, holding companies accountable. Like, I'm not spending my money with you because you look like you do not care about me. You know, mm. or we've seen evidence and proof that you do not care about my people. And I appreciate that because at the end of the day, what really drives change is money is where your dollars flow. Because if you look at even the civil rights movement, the things that like, you know, the, the bus boycotts that finally drove change. You know, when you start when you start impacting people's pockets is when you start to see change happen. But it doesn't mean that you're necessarily impacting their hearts. And that's where the real change needs to happen for it, I think, to stick. Because when you change their hearts, then you can now change generations. Mm-hmm. If you're just impacting their pockets, you're only impacting them for this one scenario and this one situation where they can find ways to act on what they really feel emotionally they will yeah yeah so i don't know i think that we have made some progress i think that you know these movements have reached more people than than ordinarily would would have heard the message or they've also humanized the problem as well to where there are people who may have denied that racism exists and may have just been like well i don't see it in my pocket of the of the country where i am but then when you have, you know, a nationwide movement and it's happening in some cities that you would not expect and there's, you know, there's protests and things that are happening in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect and where there's only five black people, but those five black people are standing on the street complaining and telling you, like, I feel this problem as well. I hear the ways in which this impacts me, you know. So I'm, I'm hopeful that more people have heard. But at the end of the day, like the elections tell you, the country is still very much divided, still very much divided down the middle. And I don't hear from any, like, you know, I think now the whole messaging is let's unite, let's come together, let's try yeah. to, let's try. But I can tell you from the people that are, I guess, on the side of, you know, who have had injustice happen to them are very much like, well, why should I sit at the table with you? And really at the table, what you want to do is poison me. So mm. why should we together? Why should I have, be forced to do that? Go fix your problems first and then come back and let's talk about it. Like, you know. Yeah. I'm tired of having to educate you. I'm tired of having to teach you why this is wrong. You know, there's enough research. There's enough, um, there's enough um, information out there. If you just do a little bit of research, since you feel like now you're talking in a way that you want to educate yourself, go and educate yourself and come back and then talk to me about this afterwards and change your mindset and then come back, fix your problems and then come back. I don't necessarily want to sit and hold hands with you. In the mm. I understand that sentiment. I, 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 I understand it fully. Yeah, but yeah. At no, the end of the day, for change mm. to happen, I think. You have to reach across the aisle to some degree. Yeah, yeah. No, real. Yeah, it's it's true because the information is out there, and um, this is what is happening actually over here in Germany. Because now the debate about institutional structural racism is, yeah, it's ongoing. It's still not yet there where it should be, but at least it's recognized, and um, this is a good step already. And um, we have also really great scientists and really experts who actually really had the right tools for the right time. So um, the topic is, is, is it's on the table and um, it's, yeah, it's about um, also the white system, white supremacy and um, really white people understanding um, their white privilege. Because um, this is now the case. And uh, yeah, what I see with the next generation, the younger generation, they're more um, into it. You know, they flow with it. They, they can accept and they can reflect. 
But that's part of the difference between Germany and America is, you know, Germany, I feel like, has addressed some of their problems more head on. Like, they're more, like, here are things that happened in our history that was horrible. We will tell everyone, we will teach everyone, we will make sure that everyone is aware that this horrible thing happened. So I think they are more upfront with dealing with these things, whereas America has been more so like, this happened a long time ago, and let's, you know, and now everything is better. And, like, there's this mass gaslighting. <laughs> <that> <laughs> Yeah, this mass pretense of like, oh, that was in the past. That doesn't happen anymore. Well, actually, no, it does. It's just that you've gotten better in the way that you do these things. And, it's, you know, it's now the infrastructure that you put in place to make sure that this happens. It's just different. The root cause is the same. Yeah. The people who are still impacted are still the same people. The pain is still the same on the other side of it. It's just that we're not talking about it in the ways that we should in more formal structures and more like it's not spoken unless you you choose to take a class on like for myself, like I took a class on um, civil rights in Virginia in college. You have to, it's an elective. You have to decide to learn that. It's not something that's taught to you because everyone needs to know this information. And I think that that's really sad. That's part of where the problem starts from because if you don't start to educate from the beginning and if you don't tell the truth in, in those stories to children, when they are still learning and when they are still in that space of being able, you're still molding your, your thoughts, you're still molding your, your character. You wait until they're old and then they have to go out and find out this information on their own or at home, what they're learning is completely false stories. Mm-hmm. You end up repeating history, essentially. Exactly. Reproduction. No, but actually over here, I mean, a lot has not been told actually. Um, where also now um, institutions realize that they really need to um, rethink and restructure because mm. a lot has been hidden. Because when I was thinking of Germany earlier, I'm thinking at least in relation to how Germany handled, um, you know, World War, the Holocaust, and like in terms of past, you know, that kind of dealing with things that were painful in the past and bringing that to the forefront. All right. But it seems they would raise, there's still work there, right? Yeah. Black people are still always at the bottom of the totem pole in terms of what is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in that case, absolutely. Oh, from day one in school, you you definitely get to know, yeah, historically and up to today, yeah, it's clear um, it happened and it shouldn't be forgotten. And um, yeah, this is how it's been treated and it should not be repeated. Yeah, Imagine 2020. Was the messaging that was happening around, you know, slavery around apartheid around you know these different around you know um colonialism you know if that was the same messaging that was happening across the world and the way people were teaching these things in schools and you know everyone was learning the same information and i'm saying that same information being taught even in africa even on the continent because you don't for example in nigeria you don't learn about the civil war more than a date and a few key players and that's it but you don't Mm -hmm. really learn about the what happened? What did that feel like? Well, you know, so that you know those lessons and then you understand that from childhood and you live in a way that you don't want to allow those things repeat themselves. You don't want tribalism to happen anymore because you can see, you can, we, we saw what the outcome of that was. So mm-hmm. imagine if that was the same way we were all being taught these, these lessons of these mistakes that we have made in the past. Because I think it's the reason why we keep repeating them. We're not teaching them in, with the intention of us learning from them and and trying not to repeat them we're teaching them with like a date this happened but it's everything's fine now because you i think there's a misconception that like by not actually talking about it by not addressing the problem directly or we're not going to incite anger in some people who were hurt before we're not going to you know we're not going to open reopen wounds but i think it's quite the opposite it's quite Mm -hmm. the opposite ignoring it and acting like it didn't happen is the thing that makes it most painful absolutely yeah. And what what is also your opinion on the um, African youth? Do you have the feeling that the education they gain is solid? Or would you mm-hmm. say that there's also lack of, of, yeah, certain information? Because what I sometimes experience is um, when I meet also creatives, um, of course, they're absolutely aware of their history from their country and where they're coming from. But um, when it gets to Europe or America, you know, 
there are certain informations they don't have. And um, I think sometimes it's important to know certain information so you can also implement them in your artwork. And yeah, yeah what would you say? I just talked about a couple of them. Like, I think there definitely are gaps, right? You know, I was fortunate to have been educated on multiple continents and in different spaces. So, you know, I went to, my early education was was here in Nigeria and I know how much of that, well, at the time I didn't even really realize a lot of my education was happening outside the classroom for me. So I feel like a lot of the things that impact the work that I do now and a lot of the things that impact my understanding of the world now didn't necessarily happen in the classroom. They happened at home because of my parents made sure that I was exposed to these things. I understood what was going on with the civil rights movement in America, even though I was living in Nigeria, you know, and that's because of my father and his worldview and his need to make sure that his children are aware that the world exists beyond just this little space, you know? So I think there definitely are a lot of gaps. There definitely are a lot of gaps in, in, even in, in, understanding our history because how much do we learn about colonialism like really 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 understand and learn about how that system really messed things up in this space how things change because that's not how it's taught in school but the thing that i'm excited for with african youth right now is the fact that the world is not as big as it used to be there's more exposure like i think part of why the ntrs movement could happen is because i mean first of all it was a youth-led movement right and the reason why it could happen is because we're seeing things beyond just what's the government would want us to see. We're communicating in ways beyond just what, and unfortunately it means that they're also, you know, trying to stifle this, these means of communication. But social media alone <laughs> creates so much more exposure than we would, we had, you know, yeah. in the past, right? That alone is, is, is a network that connects people regardless of where you are. And I think this year has also taught us that you don't have to physically be somewhere mm. to impact change in that space or to learn from people in that space or to interact with people in that space. We've all had to learn how to how to live in this virtual world. And it's happening across, it's, it's happening everywhere. So even on, on the continents, people are leveraging technology a lot, much more heavily than they were in the past. Um, and I'm excited for what that means. I mean, there's the good and there's the bad that comes with everything. There's the good and there's the bad that comes with it. <laughs> but yeah. if we lean into the good, if we lean into sharing information, if we lean into building infrastructure, if we lean into building community that expands beyond just the physical space that we live in, then we are passing information back and forth in a way that might actually lead to more growth, might actually lead to more development, and lead to more enlightened individuals. And I'm excited for the youth because I think that's what's happening is there's more exposure than there was in the past. People are also, be, you know, able to live more, people are, be, are more expressive as mm. well in terms of how they're living their lives. Like there's, I look at the growth in the creative community. It's happening because there's more people, more people being able to say, you know what? No, not everybody has to be a doctor. We have enough doctors already. This is the one that I like. I can do this. I'm a very good painter. Let me be painting this thing that I'm painting. Who knows what this will become, you know? Or this can, and then they're learning ways to evolve, not just the creative craft that is into other things. Like I'm a great painter. I'm a great, you know, um, I'm a great seamstress, but I'm going to end up building this other thing using this underlying skill set. So people are also learning ways in which to leverage one, leverage talent that might be focused in one direction to building other things as well. That impacts not just themselves, but that impacts the communities around them. And you see a lot of the youth solving problems in interesting ways because our problems are unique to us. Mm. So, and, you know, when there's yeah. a necessity of invention at the end of the day, which is why you see people building these interesting things and finding ways to, so, to solve our own issues, but using, inter- using information and infrastructure they may have, like little bits of information that they may be able to get from the West, to then solve our problems here, you know? So access to information, I think, is the most exciting thing. Yeah. For the next generation. Totally. Absolutely. Oh, wow. So um, what I know is that, um, I hope I'm going to spell it right, Osengwa. And the Monroe Trust collaborated to present the Afrofrontal Exhibition in celebration of grand opening of the Simpsonian National Museum of African American 
history and culture, you know, and yeah, so the exhibition featured illustrations, paintings, photographs, and um, yeah, I would like to know, like, what is the, the American appetite for African art, aesthetics, and sound? Do you, <laughs> right now, I say the appetite is <laughs> very, very, very. Um, I'd say the appetite definitely exists, and it's it's wet. It's people are. I think this is the time, right? You know, you would say over the last few years, I think Black Panther was one of the was like a, it was like a huge catalyst and a driving force in creating that appetite, right? Mm. Because it's it gave a lot more exposure to Af- I won't I won't say Afrocentric because I would say most Africa African centered ideas, I think to a wider audience and positive images of Africa to a wider audience than it had in a long time. So at least within the African American community especially there is a very, you know, and I think the other thing that happened with that too was African creatives now realized, oh, wait, hold on. So, Afri- and these are African creatives in the diaspora. So you actually like our things, no problem. I will create for you. So they've also started creating in a way that is more expressive of the African culture. On, in, um, they were already there. They were already doing things and already working in these spaces. But now they're bringing things that are African to the forefront in these spaces now. And... I think this is the time to really ride that wave. Mm. This is the time to try to build on it because there's, because, and I say wave because I feel like this has happened. If you look at American history, there's been times where, you know, black power movement and, you know, people being very much attracted to the African aesthetic, like back in the days when it was, everyone had an Afro and everyone wore dashiki and, you know, so there, there was that, that happened, and then it died down for a while, you know? So I think mm-hmm. this is another wave. I don't know how long it will last. Um, I don't know how long the interest will last, but I think it's a good time to ride the wave, and I think it's a good time to try to get as much exposure as you can, educate as many people as you can, mm-hmm. and share the culture and share the space with as many people who are interested. And there are lots of businesses that I see thriving in this ecosystem right now, um, and I'm excited for that. I'm hoping that it is something that is more sustainable than a wave i'm hoping that this is something that we're able to actually make a that can actually be a long lasting impression that is left and something that people continuously want to come back and engage with Mm. not just conversation for the time being because it's interesting and because we've seen a few things that look you know enticing but i'm hoping that we can continue to that it can actually be sustainable Something that does sadden me is, for example, like last last year, there was this whole movement in December for, you know, with all these folks going back to Ghana for the year of the return, you know. And I was excited for that because I thought, this is great. People are actually trying to engage with the continent, physically go there and see what life is like. Mm. But then it, there's the good parts, there's the bad parts. There's things that, you know, the, the tourism that that also generated, there was a lot of focus on just, on not necessarily experiencing the continent in full in all its richness, but just skimming the surface and enjoying the, you know, and just work, working through the parts that have been curated for you for just for your particular enjoyment because you're a tourist in the space. Mm. So there will be that, but there will also be folks who will come back and connect in a way that is more meaningful, that is richer, and then maybe will actually end up helping to build things. Because I, I, I always think back to, I know there are lots of skepticism around that, but for me, I'm a product of, someone who came back to the continent and decided to build something meaningful. If my father had not decided to stay in Nigeria for 30 years, I wouldn't exist. And the work that I do now wouldn't exist. Mm. So I'm always hopeful that in the 10 that might come, there might be one that will, that will connect in a way that is meaningful. But I'm hoping that there is more of that cross-cultural interaction. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, it needs to be meaningful because it's, it's nice, of course, to observe and to, you know, just uh, enjoy on on a certain level, but um, it's also time really to invest in the country and to um, leave the money also in the country, you know, so it can really circulate. And that's why in comparison, but you also already somehow answered, um, yeah, what the appetite is uh, in Africa or in African countries. I don't know, have you been to different African countries? 
I haven't yet. I've only been home. Um, mm. I mean, I've only been in Nigeria. This trip, I was hoping to go to Ghana. Yes. Um, but Rona, right? <laughs> also <called laughs> testing and all of these things. Yeah. So that's those plans that I had. Um, mm. Hoping that things change over the next few months, but I, I'm definitely planning on traveling around the continent over the next yeah. few years, especially because I'm hoping to build this network with Osengwa and start to reach out to more artists in different countries. Like As it is already, we have folks from different countries that we engage with, but I want to be able to go and engage with them in person, right? And actually yeah. do projects that extend outside of just nigeria absolutely um, and then so what would you say is the appetite in nigeria do you find that um the work and the products that are being created are really um well received and um people are really into made in nigeria mm, i'm gonna have to say yes because I've definitely seen, even if it's just in the fashion space, like I've definitely seen a growth in the appetite for homegrown, homemade fashion. You know, a lot more people are wearing and proudly wearing things that are designed by, and then because these designers are now also being celebrated outside of here. And unfortunately that's part of the problem, right? You have to first of all get recognition outside your home or your folks in your home to feel like as if you are of value. That saddens me immensely because these guys were already creating and doing this work for years. But then also I, the other thing that I've seen happen over the last few years is an improvement in the production process. Like I know when I first started Osengwa and I tried to do some, you know, bulk purchases of, um, and working with some of these designers who at the time weren't as, they didn't have a production process that was as refined. I had issues with fit, issues with styling, issues, you know, like little, little details that I think they've started to work through and they finessed now, which is allowing um, for an increase in sales and allowing for better acceptance in the market, right? Because if you have less issues with your product, more people are going to buy it. So there's also the element of, I mean, there's the impact of growth within the industry itself and then there's the impact of of growth and acceptance um because of the recognition that they're getting out outside the country mm. so i'm happy for that and i'm excited for that and then you also have more things like you know rise fashion week um yeah um, lagos fashion week and all these different platforms that are also giving more exposure exposure to these artists so yeah. that helps in them actually being able to build a market base here yeah. And then you have like, aside from from the fashion, there's the um, music, <laughs> and these things. And I always think these all these things go and they go together because when you have the musicians who are wearing these African designers and the musicians yeah. who are essentially the influencers and who have you know gained lots of popularity, that also drives more traffic towards or drives more of the market towards actually wanting to engage with the homegrown product yeah sounds good and then actually um what do you actually think about this whole afrofuturism concept <laughs> get to this place at one point especially since i mentioned um black panther and the wakandanization of africa and this topic has been a hot one this year really and i think that goes back to the whole afrofuturism thing right um I don't know. I don't know yeah. where to start with that one. What, is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about it? In what aspect exactly? Let's maybe yeah. let's go there. Yeah, yeah, you know, because I mean, this whole Afrofuturism, in a way, um, how should I put it? Um, I mean, also over here in Germany, it's, it's a thing, you know, like, yeah, you know, you have all these contemporary artists and um, there's a new aesthetic, a new global aesthetic. And um, I just wonder because, there has been already a static. It's just that now with the, what you already mentioned with the social media, we are now able to express ourselves and we are now able to tell our story because before the story was told by the Europeans or the Americans and mostly, of course, by white people. And now it's finally the time that we can express an African perspective. And, um, I know over here we have some experts there not really aligning with this whole Afrofuturism idea, Afrofuturistic um, approaches. Um, of course, these are something what institutions, museums like to use to have a, something mm-hmm. to, to hang on and then to express um, what is happening now. But I find somehow it neglected 
or it neglects what was in the past because there was things happening. There was, there was so much going on. It's just that it couldn't be expressed because the technology was not yet there or it was systematically, um, yeah, oppressed, you know? Well, I don't know if it's that the Afrofuturistic movement is, you know, trying to deny the past. If anything, I think it's trying to marry the past and the future or what the impression of what the future might look like, you know, on the continent or what's the impression of, of what Africa might bring to the future, maybe. Right? And that's why I said, you know, what element of this conversation are we talking about? If you're talking about just Afrofuturism as a movement in itself, mm. I think, and so my, some, I know some artists who who fight against that title because they don't like it for different reasons and they don't think it applies to their work necessarily. But I think their work does, does still fit into this, into this um, category somewhat because it's the marriage of the past and the future to some extent, I think. I'm excited for those who do claim it and those who do live in the space and those who, do, who are pushing it forward in, in their own way. Um, uh, because I think at the end of the day, it's a form of expression. And you should be able to express yourself in whatever way you really desire to, especially if it's creating beautiful work. And there's a lot of beautiful work that's happening in that space. A lot of really interesting things are happening in that space. But I also understand how it may feel problematic for others who might think like, you know, this isn't necessarily really rooted in culture or this isn't necessarily... um, it isn't the only, I think the, 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 the largest argument that I've seen is just uh, the, the loudest argument that I've heard is that this isn't the only voice that Africa mm. has, right? And I think that's very valid. I think that's very valid because it's not the only thing that's being created on the continent. It's not the only thing that's being exported from the continent. There's mm. other forms of creative expression that's happening in other styles. I think the other styles should be acknowledged and everything doesn't come out of Nigeria. That's another thing that's a problem because I think that's, you know, Nigeria has been very much... On the forefront. (laughs) Everything. Africa is not Nigeria. You know, there are other other countries that are creating, there are artists from other countries that are creating some really beautiful, some really amazing work, many of them. And I think, for example, like Black is King, right, is one of those spaces with very Afrofuturistic work. But, and there's many, there have been many, many debates on, you know, whether this was beneficial to the continent or not. I will say the thing that I enjoyed in, I enjoyed from watching that production was one, it was beautiful work, right? But then the fact was the, the creatives were from the continent. There were a lot of artists and it was not just Nigerians that were working on this. You had some really amazing folks from South Africa. You had some really amazing Kenyan artists. You had, you know, you had some really amazing artists, point blank period, giving an opportunity to express themselves on a larger platform, which I was very happy for them for that. So for me, I was like, I'm celebrating these guys. These are guys that I've been following for years. I've been looking at their work for forever, down to makeup artists that worked on the thing, from makeup artists to designers to, you know, the photographers to, I mean, there's just so many, like, amazing creatives that, to, that worked on it. Yeah. So I was excited for them, aside from the ones that worked on the music as well, you know, I was excited for them to have that platform to be able to express themselves and to be able to reach, to have much wider reach than they ever would have had just by working by themselves in their own little pockets. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping being able to work on a project like that, and that's even, I've already started seeing it happen, like they start to get more work in other spaces and they start to get more recognition in other spaces because now someone else can now see that, oh, this guy over here in this corner is doing this amazing thing. He doesn't necessarily have to be in America to make it happen in America. He can make it happen from the continent. And yeah. that's the thing I'm enjoying, is people being able to export work without necessarily having to leave mm-hmm. to get that recognition. Yeah. All right. Nice. Well said. Wow, we're coming also to an end. And um, it was really good to listen to you and your thoughts right there from Abuja. Thank <laughs> you for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. So what we always do on the podcast, we have two key questions. The first key question is, what does fashion mean to you? Ooh, what does fashion mean to me? Fashion is it's the first it's the first form of of 
expression, isn't it? It's the first thing that people get hit with when they see you. It's the first visual element that people get hit with is how do you present yourself in the world? How do you navigate the world? How do you, it's, you know, fashion is the first form of expression. It's the first thing that allows you to say who you are without necessarily using words or say who you want to be or who you want to be in a particular space or how you want to be perceived in a particular space. Because at the end of the day, it also helps you become a comedian. You can, you know, adapt, shift if you need to, just by changing your clothes. So I think fashion is incredibly powerful. Um, but it is the first form of expression for me. All right. And how do you define your role in this movement? <laughs> the eyes are like, wow. Right. <laughs> um, Hmm, how do I define my role in this movement? I would say it's the way I define my role in quite, you know, as outside of fashion as well as really as a connector. Um, I derive great joy from building spaces in which others can discover interesting and beautiful things. And the fashion of Africa, I think, is incredibly beautiful. So I guess I would describe my role as a connector, being able to connect people with the beauty that I find on the continent and I think that they should experience as well. Great. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were listening to Beatrice and Seju. Incredible mind. And um, yeah, we were pleased to have her here on our podcast so stay with us thank you for listening to fashion african podcast thank you seju you're listening to fashion african podcast we humbly ask you to respect our intellectual property we want to leave you inspired informed educated connected this is who we are fashion africana podcast get in touch with us on fashionafricanow.com